Hello and welcome to Wine Blast with me, Peter Richards, and my wife and fellow master of wine, Susie Barry. Uh, And in this one, we're going on a fun and fascinating foray into the realms of science, psychology, and sandpaper. Yes, prepare to have your mind boggled because we are privileged to have been granted an audience with the brilliant and really quite famous Professor Charles Spence, Mm. an experimental psychologist and world expert in multisensory perception and experience design. His work tends to blow your mind before reassembling it in unexpected and exciting ways. And we think every wine lover needs to be aware of this stuff. The pleasures of the table really reside in the mind not in the mouth. I mean, I guess the sort of the protocol for wine tasting is multi-sensory. We are all influenced uh, by the environment and, and knowing that, one thinks, well, okay, how can we then optimise the environment or the atmosphere? And it is those sort of potentially transformative or magical experiences that you might get by combining wine with food or wine with music that are really intriguing. So, how we experience the world around us and how we can get the most out of our wine, those are things... We're all interested in, yeah? We are. We We are are. indeed. Okay, good. So we're going to touch on taste, smell, sight, sound, touch, atmosphere or setting, glassware, bottles, genetics, Mm -hmm. um, and the future. Um, How am I doing there? Uh, It's a lot of touching. It's a lot of stuff. We're touching a lot of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Including touch. Stop it. Touch and touch. Um, I had to say that editing this conversation down to an acceptable length was a huge challenge i mean it's every week but particularly this week because it was the conversation was just so far-reaching and fascinating wasn't it you yeah. know he's the kind of guy you just want to keep asking questions yeah of. i mean you, um, i think you had to drag me away from in the end didn't you um, <laughs> otherwise he'd have probably slapped us with a restraining order another one <laughs> anyway um anyway the reason that we are looking into the science of taste isn't just a bit random mm. this is part of a plan do we have a plan? We I think actually, we've got a plan. We, we, we've got a plan today. We've got a plan. We've got a plan to devote a series of programmes to to food and wine. Mm, or wine and food. Go. That's our plan. I mean, it's a subject we've done a lot of work and research on over the years. Yeah. And it is poo-pooed by some experts, but we think it is fascinating and instructive and helpful. And it's also fun. Fun is the most important fun. thing, isn't it? What was it? I mean, what was it Jean-Baptiste Le Cain said in our last episode? It was like enjoying a, a good food and wine match brought him to a, a higher level of happiness. Yeah. And if you think about it in terms of happiness, that's absolutely the right approach, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> After all, the man who makes Cristal cannot be wrong. Can he can't he? be wrong. He can't be wrong. Right. Anyway, there's lots to learn and to share. So we'll be doing a number of programmes on this theme mm. in different ways over the coming months. Yeah, but we wanted to start at the beginning, didn't we? Uh, which is, you know, in this context, understanding how we taste and experience food and wine in the first place. Because, you know, a lot of what we think we know about this isn't quite right. Mm. Is that fair to say? A lot of uh, things... We, you and me, yes. Well, I think we, yes, we've, and, we've and had everyone. <laughs> we as <laughs> we, wine experts. We've been humbled. <laughs> everyone out there, I think we all can be surprised because we mm. don't know the stuff. You know, it's, mm. I think it's just worth being aware of before yeah. we dive further in. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of which, before we dive further in, I think there was something we wanted to do, didn't we, before we, we embark on this episode? Uh, yeah. And that was to announce the lucky winners of our Bordeaux wine giveaway. Ah, lucky, lucky, lucky. Here we go. But, you know, first things first, we wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who entered. Uh, you said mm. such nice things and you made us laugh. Uh, we really appreciated everyone taking the time to throw their hat in the yeah. ring. With do, us, you know, do you know, I, I, competitions I've realised actually upset me. Go on. For most people, they're quite excited. <laughs> it's just, it's in my nature, what, what but it just, it, I know it sounds silly and obvious, but 
it's just me. It's the fact that we can't give prizes to everyone who enters. Um, oh, and, yeah. you know, and people who are so lovely and so brilliant mm, and say mm. such nice things. And yeah. I just, yeah, you know me, I want everybody to get a prize. Well, we could, we could do that. You know, we, we'd probably bankrupt <laughs> ourselves. You know, I'm not sure how good the podcasting facilities are in Broadmoor Prison, you know, but, you know, <laughs> I should add at this point, I guess, um, that because we've had such a big response, and I don't know if this is going to make you feel better, Susie, but yeah, because we've had so. such a big response and because the Bordeaux Wine Council are so nice, we have doubled the prizes have we? available. Did you from, tell me this? From two to four cases. Did oh, you know? Oh, well, that is better. That does make me feel a bit better. There you go. It's what about very that? good news. Very good news. Right. Yeah. Okay, then. Well, who, who are our winners? Okay, so so um, just before that, can I say uh, Phoebe and Phil J, I hope you get better soon. Uh, Bevis, no need to apologise. Natasha, thank you for buying our charity wines. And, and Kristen, thank you for writing on social media. Susie and Peter are just the right amount of geek yet also approachable. You know, that really, really made us laugh. I think we need a bumper sticker with that on it. Or maybe maybe at our age, a fridge magnet. Fridge, it's all about fridge, magnet. fridge magnets, isn't it? Just um, the right amount of geek. The... <laughs> no, I, I just, it's a T-shirt. It's a T-shirt. Let's, let's go there. Anyway, but our winners uh, selected at random are... Drum roll. Oh, I'm not very good at drum no, rolls. You always no, tell no, me off the drum rolls. <laughs> da, 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 da. Well, there we go. Fanfare. Jazz Ward, who says she's obsessed with Wine Blast. Thanks, Jazz. Uh, Magda in Wineland, number two, who says Wine Blast is simply a pleasure to listen to. Uh, Stephen Tallon, third winner, emailed in to say, I recommended your podcast to my wife, Cleona, recently. Um, while she enjoys her wine as well and indulges my constant wine chat, I received a short and succinct no when suggesting that maybe we could also be a husband and wife masters of wine team. Uh, I did, however, manage to get her to subscribe to the podcast, so the dream lives on. I thought I actually thought that she was saying no to listening to the podcast. I was thinking, oh, that's a, <laughs> it's a bit harsh. A bit harsh, yeah. <laughs> Never. <laughs> anyway, keep going, Stephen. You never know what might happen. Yeah, well done, Stephen. Keep it up. Uh, and then our final winner is Callum, who left us a speak pipe message. Hi, Susie. Hi, Peter. Hope you're well. Um, just wanted to say I'm absolutely loving the podcast. Uh, I'm a training sommelier at the moment, and it's been an absolute blessing on my journey to and from work, um, both in terms of entertainment and educating me. So it's been super appreciated, and I've recommended the podcast to Lots of colleagues, friends, families, strangers. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you, Callum. And thanks to all our lucky winners and also to the Bordeaux Wine Council, who will be in touch with you soon to arrange delivery of your wines. If you didn't win this time, we really did appreciate you getting involved. Mm. And I am sure we will be running another competition very soon. Yeah. yeah. So on to the topic at hand. Uh, Charles Spence is a distinguished professor who spent over 20 years researching how people perceive the world around them at the Crossmodal Research Laboratory at Oxford University. Uh, he's published several books among them the classic gastrophysics, uh, the new science of eating, and more recently, sense hacking, how to use the power of your senses for happier, healthier living. Now, wine features a lot in his work, and mm. he describes gastrophysics as, and I quote, a new approach to thinking about food and drink experiences, essentially looking beyond the basic mechanics of taste, whatever they are, mm. and focusing on the mind of the person eating or drinking, what's influencing their perception or enjoyment or experience, and then how this whole experience can be altered or manipulated or changed. Mm. Now, one interesting thing he said is that he's been working in this field for 20 
plus years. And, and one reason that he keeps coming back to wine is that there's always apparently 10 times more research on wine than anything else. That struck me as really quite surprising. I mean, I think we always we always think of wine as a bit short on research, I know, don't I know, we? I know, I agree. I mean, maybe it's just more into sort of the medical conditions that people maybe. come to us and say, I get, I get this problem, what's maybe, the, you know, maybe, and actually yeah. we don't have the research to back it up. I don't yeah. know, but apparently not. that's not the issue in academia or, or sensory research or whatever it is. I mean, he, he said that when it comes to looking at things like branding, labelling, packaging, serving receptacles and pricing, you know, for things like baked beans or, or chips um, or tea, he looks at what's been done in wine first because you know, there's there's so much more research out mm. there. He said perhaps it's because with wine there's, there's there's so much choice, hence you know competition and, and variation out there. Also, <laughs> that there are more experts, including mm. masters of wine, mm. note that uh, on wine than baked beans. Uh, it does make sense. <laughs> Did you ever <laughs> think about going to baked beans? Is it bad? Wine expert, baked bean expert. Mm, I think yeah. I probably made anyway, the right choice. Um, he also said that wine uh, that wine people tend to have stronger beliefs, Ooh, so it's more know? fun challenging those beliefs and, and and asking where those beliefs come from. You know, and, and what's sort of true in all of this? What is true? Well, one thing that is true on a practical note is that Charles was wearing a puffer style gilet when mm. we interviewed him and it rustles quite a bit especially when he's gesticulating uh, so apologies if that comes through in the sound <laughs> I mean it almost makes it easier to envisage the scene you know if you correspond the sound of the of the gilet mm. rustling to the image of him waving his arms around so we're going to use that and mm. it's also thinking about it it's actually quite a nice multi-sensory experience right oh, there too there isn't it you, you know you listen then you see I'm sure Charles would approve. I'm sure he would. Um, and it's perhaps worth mentioning, isn't it, then that his whole outfit was pretty splendid. Um, we're talking peach-coloured chinos and stripy socks too. Um, so you're being unfair. No, no, I think he'd be fine. But I hope it he'd be fine about that. It was an outstanding outfit. Uh, you can check that out on our Instagram, and we'll uh, we'll put a photo or two on our show notes as well. Uh, but to move from fashion to flavour, I started by asking Charles what he meant when he'd written that. To get the most out of a meal, we needed to think not only about what goes on in our mouths, but also what's going on in our minds. So uh, my sort of favourite line would be that you know, the pleasures of the table really reside in the mind, not in the mouth. And what do I mean by that? Well, if one thinks about what flavours are and why we think things taste the way they do, then it's not just a matter of what happens on our tongue, kind of the taste receptors there. It's also a matter of how things smell. Uh, it's how they look, how they sound, their texture, their feel, and all of those sensory cues from food and drink first come together in your mind, not in your mouth. And then your brain does this kind of amazing trick of combining all the senses together with your mood, emotion, nostalgia, whatever else, and then sort of projects that flavour back into your mouth so you're convinced you can taste whatever's uh, sloshing around in there, when in fact all the hard work was done up here in, in, in the brain instead. Now, a lot of what you do focuses on food, but you do also kind of dabble in wine. Uh, and you've said, and I quote, there's nowhere more fun to play in than this space than wine. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we always talk about wine tasting. But of course, it's not it, it's it's not just the tasting that's happening, is it? You know, our brains are then interpreting and, and working on those sensory inputs. Can you Talk us through what is actually happening in our brains when we taste wine. I mean, I guess the sort of the protocol uh, for wine tasting is um, multi-sensory. Very often, you, you're, I guess you're told to, to look at the wine first. So you're using vision to set up an expectation of what you're about to taste. Um, and then you might have your first and second nose 
of the wine, um, and all that's happening before you've even tasted. Uh, you may have heard the sound of the bottle opening, something you probably most people don't think about, and yet we've done research to show that even the sound of a cork stoppered bottle opening versus a screw cap op- opening changes your evaluation of what you think you're tasting. And once you've had those auditory cues from opening, maybe pouring, uh, uh, the visual cues, the olfactory cues, uh, then uh, comes in um, the taste. Uh, And my sort of general position is our brain's already decided what we're going to taste. Has it really by that point? Prediction. So our brain's sort of predicting where are the energy and stuff. um, And if it looks that colour, then there's... and And for the wine expert, they build up a lot stronger predictions based on colour about you know the, the 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 warmth of the summer and the age of the wine and the uh, and the grape variety, so they built a much stronger expectations or predictions about what they're going to taste, um, as well as anything they might have you know uh, ima- they might use their imagination as well. I think a lot you know this if I know it's this grape or, or this region, then I should be expecting to taste this. Yeah. Uh, and then you actually do get to taste the wine that you've heard seen and uh, uh smelled i think you've done, it, haven't you done some work where you've where you've given people wine that's that's sort of the wrong color as mm-hmm. it were and and they therefore started to use terminology that was associated with the color they thought the wine was is that right and uh and the 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 uh aromas and flavors that they perceived which weren't actually necessarily in the wine or they wouldn't have perceived those with their eyes closed yes um so yeah we did a study I mean, several groups have done studies now, um, and we did one in Barcelona uh, in 2019 with about 200 winemakers, wine writers, sommeliers, and uh, assorted uh, wine experts, um, and uh, had a white wine, a rosé wine, and the white wine coloured so it looked pink, like the rosé, and indistinguishable visibly. And indeed, just like in the other research, um, all of our participants uh, were tasting things in the miscoloured wine, sort of driven by the pink colour, um, and they had a very different taste or flavour experience from the one they had for the same wine, uh, not coloured pink. And, and so we, if we go back to the, the, the brain thing, so we, we've got to the point where we've seen it, we've smelt it, we've, we haven't tasted no, it. Heard, uh, we've uh, heard uh, the cork, yes, yeah, sorry. Um, um, and then we taste, yeah. and I think um, my sort of position is that we don't really taste very much or very often, we kind of live in the world of our expectations, mostly, and uh, especially in everyday drinking, and, and maybe to a lesser extent in, in sort of guided or very deliberate wine tasting. And then we sort of taste and just check, is it as I expected it was going to taste, given what I heard, saw and smelled? And if it is, then you kind of live in the world of your expectations. You say, yeah, it's just what I thought. Let's go on to Don't think about the uh, thought, yeah, yes. conversation or uh, whatever else is going on on the TV. And- and, and just bringing in then atmosphere, how important is atmosphere or, or setting when it comes to your kind of appreciation, your enjoyment of, of, of wine? May I, I sort of start the gastrophysics book uh, with a sort of example of the Provençal Rosé Paradox, which is kind of, I think, kind of the quintessential example of the power of the environment or the atmosphere to affect our judgments and perception. And it's sort of an, an important counterpoint to, to the way it feels to all of us that we can just taste the wine in the glass. That we would not be influenced by the softness of the chair or the or or, or, or the Barry White in the background, um, or the beautiful sunset. Yes, yeah, um, and all those things. We all sort of feel like no, I can really taste what's in the glass, what's in my mouth, and I would not be influenced by this other stuff. But the problem, Sal Rosie paradox, kind of suggests otherwise, and it's something that resonates with everybody. I think 
but for us northern europeans and that, and that is essentially thinking you know if when you're on holiday in provence you love the wine because you're there in the beautiful sunshine looking sitting on a terrace maybe eating beautiful provencal food and it just tastes amazing you get it home and it's never quite the same is that's the exactly that in a cold yes. wintry yeah. uh, like, north uh, and what's changed um i think it's partly about your mood uh being more relaxed on holiday perhaps with your family less stresses and partly about the atmosphere and the environment you're in and even though you can't taste the sun on your back uh the warmth and maybe the, the smell of the sea and the, the sound of the seagulls that's all kind of influences uh the experience we are all influenced uh, by the environment and, and knowing that one thinks well okay how can we then optimize the environment or the atmosphere to get the most out of of tasting experiences I think it wasn't there an experiment that, that Campo Viejo did where they did different light. Yep, um, uh, that was us in 2014. Yeah. Uh, we had about 3,000 people in um, the South Bank Centre in London for the Campo Viejo Colour Lab and gave people a glass of uh, Rioja and a black tasting glass so they couldn't see it. So this is red Rioja yeah. in a black tasting, tasting glass. Um, and in groups of about 30 people, we took over three days um, and had them in a room with no windows. Um, Initially under white lighting, got them to rate the fruitiness, the freshness, um, and liking for the wine, uh, and then put the lights to red um, and asked them to rate the wine again. Did they know it was the same yeah, wine? Yeah, they had the did glass know was the in their hand wine. the whole yeah. time because it was going to be sort of a logistical nightmare to have you know, twelve thousand <laughs> tasting glasses. <laughs> um, so it was the same glass, the same scorecard. They haven't moved. All we did was flick the lights. They rated the wine again. Then we flicked the lights to green instead. And then we added either sweet or sour music to the red or green lighting. Um, and amazingly, uh, simply by changing the colour of the lights from red to green, we could bring out fruitiness by about 15%. From red to green? Yeah. So there was more fruitiness with the green? With red. With red, red sorry. Red, sweet sorry. and fruity, uh, and more acidity. With the and green. freshness with the green lighting. About 15% difference. Uh, and then when we added the sweet music to the red lighting or the or the sour music to the yeah. green lighting, that did another 5% Gosh. change. And um, yeah, that's sort of capturing the Provencal rosé in a way, saying the environment's very powerful. And, and just to have people coming out of that experience when they the glass, the wine hadn't changed its colour because you couldn't see it. Um, and you knew the wine hadn't left your hands. And yet you could just look at your scorecard and there were that's people writing, oh my thing. God. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and you, I knew lighting had some impact, but as soon as you changed the colour... Yeah. The, the taste of the wine changed. Because to me, that is, you know, the, the fact they, the, if you'd given them a different, if you'd given them the same wine, but they had had a new glass, mm-hmm. so they thought it might have been different, but they knew they were tasting the same wine. That's extraordinary, mm-hmm. isn't it? And these are, are, are mostly um, sort of regular consumers. They're not the experts. Um, but they like wine. Yeah, yeah. We had the, you know, the winemakers from Campo Viejo there, and they were going, wow, when yeah. we get back to, uh, to Spain, we're going to have to change our uh, cellar door experience in the vineyard because it's clear. So since then, um, it's really most powerful for those who went through the experience. And I wonder whether all are equally affected. Um, like going back in uh, Emile Penot and other sort of uh, famous analogists talking about, you know, um, uh, the, the tasting should be done in silence, no talking, no music, no mm-hmm. chit-chat. Uh, don't wear any perfume on the day because that will affect the tasting. Mm. Um, trying to sort of minimise or neutralise the environment. To, to, to make themselves like you know sort of tasting machines almost mm. so i guess maybe that suggests they too or he and others like him recognized that they could be influenced and tried to take it out so 
So there's a lot to be getting on with there, isn't there?、Mm-hmm. Um, we live there in、is. the world of our expectations.、Um, but he did qualify that this was particularly when it comes to everyday drinking and that deliberate wine tasting can be different.、Mm, but it's, it's worth being aware of things affecting you and、mm. how, how true objectivity may be difficult to achieve. I mean,、mm. I loved his experiment as well with, with Rioja and how just switching the colour of the light in a room meant people's opinion of <laughs>、yeah. the same wine、yeah. changed by up to 20%. I mean, the、yeah. glass hadn't even left their hands. Know, isn't that? It's mad, isn't it? It's absolutely fascinating. He did also briefly mention research on corks versus screw caps, didn't he, and how that、yeah. influences wine,、uh, which I wanted to pick up on. I think, I think what he was referring to, certainly what I've seen, it was a, 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 you know, a 2017 experiment, which I actually participated in. It was called the Grand Cork Experiment.、Um, uh, where people you get all were, the glamorous gigs, don't you? <laughs> where people were played the sound of a cork popping before tasting a wine. And then the sound of a screw cap opening before you tasted the same wine. You know, just to see how it influenced your, your perception. And did it influence your perception?、Um, do you think? So, sort of, not really. I mean, for me, not so much, I have to say. You know, I tried to be quite open minded.、Uh, I guess not everyone going in was a wine expert.、Mm. Uh, but I actually found. You know, no massive difference really. You know, if anything, the screw cap made for me the taste slightly more intense and therefore more pleasurable. But I'm not sure I was in the majority because it's you faster know, and you just get the wine quicker. <laughs> well, there's an element of that. I don't have to open <laughs> so many corks.、Um, but the results, you know, the, the results did seem to suggest wine tasted better after a cork is popped or you、mm. hear the sound of a cork. I mean, I, th- I think either way, it's hard to argue against the environment around wine tasting influencing our perception and experience,、yeah. isn't it? You, you know, so, so anyway, so in this context, I wanted to ask Charles. About music and wine.、Mm. Um, you know, we'd taken part in an experiment of his, hadn't we,、um, with a room full of other wine professionals back in 2016, tasting four wines, listening to different music. And the results showed that even experienced wine tasters had their judgments influenced by the music.、Mm. And、uh, Charles has actually described music or sound as a forgotten flavour sense. So I asked him to tell us a bit more about this. So we've been working now for maybe. Almost 14 years actually on sort of sonic seasoning,、uh, the use of sound sonic、uh, seasoning, seasoning.、Uh, the use of sound to season food and drink.、Mm. Much like you might add a bit of sugar or salt to a dish or a bit of chili, we've got a sonic equivalent、uh, of that. The fact that we might associate、uh, a wine or a grape with a particular piece of music, and then separately that by playing matching or mismatching music, you can bring out, change the tasting experience in ways that are predictable. So, we have、um, now we have sort of musical menus to bring out sweetness, to bring out salty, sour, bitter, spicy. And so, an、um, example of, of bringing out spicy, how, what, would you,、um, what kind of music would we be looking at? So, it tends to be sort of a high tempo, higher in pitch, more sort of energetic. To me, it's sort of, we've done it sort of from the bottom up. We have people in the lab, we give them something spicy to taste or imagine tasting something spicy. And then give them like a sort of a, a musical playboard to pick sounds. Should they be rough or not? Should they be high tempo or not? Should they be,、uh, what sort of instrument or timbre should they have?、Uh, and just collect data from people and then sort of build that into a composition.、Um, And the composition that ended up coming out of that research just sounds to me like a speeded up Carrie House track. <laughs> kind of this sitar with sort of sudden、uh, transients, but、uh, much faster. But amazingly, you play that, we play that in restaurants in Nashville, Tennessee, to diners with、um, having a spicy mango salad.、Uh, and it's significantly spicier with the spicy music. Really? Even if they're not really thinking about the music, it's just sort of there in the background. And yet, if you played them something soft and mellow, they would perceive the salad as being just not as spicy. Yes, correct. 
And so now we've got, you know, to bring out bitterness, we know the lower the pitch of the music or soundscape, the better. So the key thing is that, that what you're tasting has to have that quality in it to begin with. We can't take water and turn it into wine musically yet, but exactly. what we can do is take something like a wine, a complex flavour experience, yeah. and uh, draw your attention through music to uh, the fruitiness or the sweetness. And by drawing your attention to it, just in the way I think, you know, in a, in a sort of a, a wine tasting, the expert might say, you know, can you can you taste the, the cat's piss? And suddenly there it is. It was there all along, but you couldn't really kind of the, 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 the wine expert is sort of drawing your attention to something in the tasting experience that you weren't thinking about or couldn't put a name on. And we're doing this kind of musically, so it's more subtle. I don't need to use words, but I know if I play a high-pitched sound, that will tend to bring out uh, sweetness and possibly acidity if I combine it with other uh, factors. Just, just, is there, a, is there a, a sort of a neutral music that, um, that would just be a catch-all? I don't think so. So you're right, when you think, think you can sort of give these sort of curated experiences to people when everyone's drinking the same wine um, uh, and have the music to match. I think there's no such thing as a perfect music for a wine in as much as we all live in different taste worlds. Um, and hence you might like a wine that is fruitier or fresher or drier um, than uh, the person you're drinking with. And hence you might want different music to, uh, to modify the tasting experience. So how's that going to work in a sort of practical way? Uh, well, there are new technologies coming out now um, of sort of hyper-directional loudspeakers uh, that will just give a sound shower to individual tables of drinkers or diners. So to the extent you might all be sharing a bottle of wine together, then there was music that may well match uh, the wine you have. But one thing is just recognise that that what we hear does change what we taste and how much we enjoy it, and then think how do we implement that um, for many, it may be now I've seen already a number of wine apps out there that claiming to go into the wine store and you know, scan any wine label you like. And the technology will read off the grape variety, the age, and recommend some music to match. The track. Yeah. I don't know how scientific or, or, or well thought through it is, but that sort of technology is coming. And so we're seeing a shift from sort of branded music uh, to, to, to more sort of generic solutions that would allow anybody, wherever they are, to, to, to pick uh, a music or to... To, to, to um, yeah, use music to help uh, enjoy the wine. We can't take water and turn it into wine musically yet. Hmm. Oh, yet. I mean, I'm, I'm hanging on to yet. I know. It'd be good, wouldn't it? But progress. Come on, we need progress on this front, people. <laughs> That's the dream, isn't it? Uh, but it is fascinating to hear how sound or, or music can influence our perception, isn't it? You know, yeah. in quite predictable ways. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, another thing we find influences our perception of a wine is definitely the glasses, isn't it? Mm. So I wanted to ask Charles about that too. Now, his research has indicated that the heavier the cutlery, the more people enjoy the meal. But that doesn't really correlate to our experience mm. with mm. wine glasses. I mean, we find the thinner, finer and lighter, the better. So I asked him how that works. Generally speaking, uh, heavier things are liked more, uh, uh, seen as more better quality, more intense. Um, and that's true with cutlery making food taste better. Um, it's also true, we found, with sort of wine bottles, or at least there's a correlation in the marketplace, I can say that, uh, between the weight of the wine bottle and how much you pay. But Is eight, there really? Eight grams, eight grams of glass for every extra pound sterling you pay on average. It's not good in a sustainability sense, though, is it? Because it's um, it's uh, making everybody think that the heavier, the better. And actually, that's awful for the mm-hmm. carbon footprint of the of the bottle, isn't it? Uh, indeed. 
And yet, if you're trying to deliver a, a premium a reserve, uh, a more expensive offering, part of that total offering has to be the weight, and it's going to be very hard to convince the consumer if it's a bag in box that they should pay five times as much. And that's partly about the weight. Um, Do you think we can ever change that? Because well, I mean, I'm, you know, I think I think possibly, um, and maybe in the world of you know sort of a craft ales in the states, the sort of a shift from. Uh, canned beers being just sort of commodity product and bottled beers always tasting better and that sort of shifting in the in the North American market to now premium being associated with cans to a certain degree but what about glasses uh, I think there's something in, in, interesting about uh, wine and tea in particular as two examples of a, 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 a receptacle where it feels like thinner and lighter it's is fine better. fine bone china yeah. we think of as, as yeah. the perfect receptacle for a, for a beautiful Why cup of tea. Why is that? Whereas, whereas yeah. coffee might be happier with a, a thicker rim, a heavier cup. And yeah, I haven't got to the bottom of it yet. But if we could persuade people in the same way that they might prefer a lighter, finer wine glass to prefer a lighter wine bottle, mm-hmm. we'd definitely be going... In the, if, if, if all fine wine was in lighter bottles, I wonder if um, if we'd all start to think that was a higher quality wine. So probably there, there must be ways of changing people's perception. And that's, I guess, I suppose, sort of happening or not already with sort of uh, wine corks or screw caps. Screw There's caps. that association that a, a cork stopper bottle is better, more expensive quality. And yet uh, the notion that a very high quality and or expensive wine can come in a screw cap is, has now been accepted in probably Australia and California I think uh, it has to, yeah, a large extent. Not entirely, but, you know... Maybe not in, 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 in many, France or the UK yeah, necessarily. Um, but in certain parts of the world. So there are, there are these changes that are happening. Mm. Could the same be true for, 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 for wine weight? Maybe, but then I suppose you'll have to have some other kind of cue to quality. And yeah. maybe there's just something so fundamental about weight. Of a bottle. Uh, yeah. That it's hard, it will be hard to... I mean, I can give you more gold. I could, you know, make it... A, gold foil wrap around it to make it seem more expensive in quality or or stick medals on it or um but maybe not, i'm not sure if anything has quite that sort of feel uh, of, of the, of the weight bottle. just something totally different tell us about anosmia is that how you pronounce it anosmia um and how it affects people differently because I, I have read that you are anosmic to TCA, which yep. is a great anosmia to have as far as I can see. So you, yes, you don't yes. even notice when a wine is corked. Nope, nope. Uh, anosmia, the name given to an ability to smell. The suggestion being that, in fact, we are all anosmic to some number of chemicals, compounds out there. Uh, some that are more common in food and drink and others that are less so. So um, I, for my sins have, uh, or my benefit, I'm anosmic to TCA, cork taint. Um, which means I can enjoy any bottle of wine. <laughs> I love almost. it. Others, you might be an osmic to violet or vanilla, probably one in a hundred people. Um, so there are some smells about which we differ. And of course, along with, with coriander, uh, some will say that's soapy and some will genetically say it's and, citrus and, and herbal. What or... about wine tasting and genetics? Um, how much of the difference in opinion between wine experts, and I say this um, with personal interest because Peter and I usually disagree about most wines, but how much of that can be put down to genetic variability? Um, is it because we've got different genetic makeups? Um, we live in different taste worlds. Is that why we would find the same wine quite different? Uh, I think it's going to be partly a matter of genetics. Maybe partly a matter of your gut biome. 
partly about um, maybe even your personality as well as sort of uh, prior experiences. So um, in terms of uh, the genetics, we might wonder how much influence your taster status has. Uh, that being the name given to um, sort of the third of the population who are super tasters, who are very responsive to bitter tasting strips, um, who may have more taste buds on the tongue. I was going to say that literally is more taste buds. Uh, may have okay. uh, some debate, um, but certainly some people will have fourteen times as many taste buds on their tongue as other people in the population. Gosh, so huge variation there uh, that seems to correlate um, with your sensitivity to bitter taste, but then also to sweetness and creaminess and, uh, and other taste. Properties and going back to the gut biome, just ex- explain that. What, what, if you can? <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was hoping you were going to explain that. Um, so, not really as a psychologist interested in the brain, and not something I'm, I'm expert in, but I'm sort of uh, coming across more papers talking about uh, the sort of microbiota in your gut um, and also in your, in your mouth, mouth and nose. I've read about that definitely, yeah. yes. Um, yeah. Sort of growing awareness that that um, the makeup of the biota and these various uh, cavities. Um, uh, seems to affect uh, how we experience tastes and flavours. And we've all got completely different microbiota, presumably. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that makes total sense. And so, that's, and so I've seen one or two papers suggesting that that can explain some, might help also to explain some differences in, in, in wine perception and preference. To come back to the taster status, I sort of wonder whether that, how important that really is. It is a genetic difference. But I think, you know, we sort of learn to like many things that we weren't necessarily born what liking. About, what about your DNA then? Is that a predictor of, of wine preferences? I mean, there are people like 23 and me these days who say, oh, was it spit in a bag or something and we'll analyse your DNA. And from that, we can deliver a number of predictions about taste. And indeed, with a chef in London, we want to do a spit in a bag dinner where, you know, you <laughs> <laughs> sign up, send off your spittle. I might not sign up uh, for that yeah, one. Uh, and, then we, and then could we get you know, like 12 chef or food flavour related individual differences that we could play on and the meal then we personalised to you and to your uh, DNA, amongst which would be taster status, which can be predicted by uh, such tests. By your saliva. I think a number of the um, anosmias, so I, I'm not 100% certain, but I, I, I think that these sort of uh, DNA tests could probably tell how you'd respond to cilantro um, and maybe whether you were an osmic to uh, violet. Yeah. So they could tell some things uh, uh, from that. And, and just one of our other senses, our, our touch. I know that you've done multi-sensory wine tastings where you've given people some swatches of material to feel while they're mm-hmm. tasting um, and you've played around with textured rims or lips mm-hmm. on glasses. Um, what has that shown you? Uh, it shows us that the Italian futurists were onto something back in the 1930s with their sort of tactile dinner parties. Um, Go on, explain. Uh, so F.T. Marinetti, Italian futurist, uh, not a very nice man, but had some very interesting ideas about flavour. I think most of modernist cuisine is in the, the futurist cookbook from 1932. Um, and, and in there, uh, they talk a lot about sort of pairing the senses and, and he has a whole section on syntactalism, he calls it. So sort of synesthesia, kind of surprising crossing of the senses and touch. Uh, and recommends, you know, organising dinner parties where you turn up in pyjamas made of satin and silk and velvet and sandpaper, and then you eat the food without knife and fork, burrowing your face into the plate while rubbing your neighbour's gym jams, <laughs> trying to find a correspondence, uh, the syntactalismo. Um, it could only be Italian, bizarre, yeah. couldn't it? Uh, but it turns out that, in fact, uh, we do match tastes and flavours with textures. 
in a non-random way. And that by touching something smooth or, or, or rough, that can again draw our attention to something in the tasting experience to make it better or, or less so. So we know from our research, if we give you some sandpaper, the psychologist's favourite material to rub, then that will bring out the, gin, the, the punjeriness of ginger in a ginger biscuit, say. Uh, and we've done studies with um, uh, my student Janice Swang, as was, uh, on wine with uh, sandpaper and velvet. And again, demonstrate you can affect body and uh, I can't remember whether we've we got astringency or not, but a few characteristics based on what you are feeling. Um, it's not, it doesn't seem to be quite as strong as some of the other uh, associated the musical effects, say, but for those who get it, uh, it's sort of noticeable. So, so just, um, you know, clearly everything around wine, including the taster, has got a huge impact, does have a huge impact on our perception and our enjoyment of the wine. That surely then does include the food as well and wine's sort of interaction with it. So what insights do you have on that front, the, the interaction between the food and the wine? So I've been getting more and more interested, um, in part because just you see the popular interest in pairing um, and thinking about uh, what's going on and how do you pair uh, sensations. So I've been doing a few papers on... Um, looking at all the different strategies that are used uh, to pair uh, food and wine or food and drink more generally. And on the one hand, we've been told, you know, uh, of this sort of computational gastronomy, this whole idea that you can analyse the chemical structure of food and drinks and then pick out the key volatiles or molecules and match them. Um, this sort of flavour pairing, as it's called, has been very big. I suspect, in fact, that doesn't really work, that our experience of the flavours is, is, is too hard to predict its chemical structure at least currently but you're so, still working on that um i think what so if that doesn't work molecular pairing isn't a good way to go what else how else can you advise or guide and what has been doing, done out there in the restaurants and bars and innovative spaces um and that might be around uh trying to pair things on the one hand you pair things because they come from the same place because they're equally complex because they involve the same process of making maybe a bit fermented food with a fermented drink um, but then in terms of sort of perception, uh, you might do it because they, they're they perceived as similar. The food, something in the flavour matches. I get the same note in both. But also maybe to, to have an emergence, something new, a new flavour that comes out by pairing a particular food and wine. Or you might use it to sort of harmonise or to enhance something in one part or suppress something in the other. And so there are maybe sort of six or seven different things perceptually that might go on when you combine wine with food and thinking which of those are actually possible can you ever find a food and wine pairing that delivers something that is you can't find in the wine by itself and you can't find in the food this emergence what does it even mean to say the food and wine are harmonious that's kind of a musical term so does it have a sense and then once we know these sort of pairing principles for food and wine can we use exactly the same principles when we think about pairing music with wine, kind of have the music that's harmonizes with the taste of the wine that's perceptually similar, that something emerges, and there are occasions where you know sort of a wine experts, I think the former head of the Bath now Bristol School of Wine, talking about this sort of amazing experience of Mozart and a, and a Chardonnay and something just magical happening, and it is those sort of potentially transformative or magical experiences that you might get by combining. Um, wine with food or wine with music that uh, are really intriguing. What, what do you see then? What would you predict for the future of food and wine? I guess it's increasingly uh, sort of experiential. I think 
I think we're going to see a lot more, on the one hand, sort of a ubiquitization of the sort of experiential stuff that you've in the past you've only read about or maybe experienced in the fancy restaurant that will come into the home environment through these sort of branded sensory apps. I think you know, we're at a stage now where you know actually making musical compositions to match a specific wine and to be sort of enjoyed as a almost like a tasting journey and the music will 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 transform over a minute or a few minutes in the way same way that the wine might do. And this could all be done at home. Oh uh, yeah. Maybe the creative process will be somewhere else, but I'm seeing more and more drinks companies um, working with the creatives uh, to create this sort of experiential content and then think about how to get it to people in the home. We might think, you know, why did we ever think that tasting the wine in the sort of the dark, damp, quiet cellar was the way to go? Thinking about, you know, tasting a bit of wine or anything else as a, you know, a, a an experience. Do you think uh, virtual reality might even come into it? I mean, we've done things with sort of augmented reality, changing sushi that you look like you're eating, and, we, and others can change the colour of a drink in real time. My my Japanese colleague who does lots of this augmented reality put a headset on and he's into his beer, so he loves changing the colour of beer and, and such like. But that said, I sort of worry that putting on a headset interferes with the social aspects of and, and eating and drinking are primarily social, so that won't work. Currently, I'm very interested in this, you know, could we use the augmented or virtual reality to give us something we've never had before rather than just something we know? So, for example, I'm really interested in metallic, in gold, in shine. This is a property we like of things. And yet we've never eaten anything gold or metallic. Or So, you know, could I create a uh, use virtual reality then to, to turn my wine into liquid gold? Uh, that would be something you couldn't do physically necessarily. Um, and by so doing, does that make for a nicer, uh, more enjoyable uh, experience. One day we may be drinking liquid gold. Professor <laughs> Charles Spence, thank you so much. So, drinking liquid gold in satin and sandpaper pyjamas, you know, with Mozart and just the right kind of glasses and food. I think I know what we're doing for our next dinner party. Do you there know? Yeah. Anyone who's invited, just beware. Really it does. It does make you think, doesn't it? Though, um, or rethink mm. the way you approach your wine and food, and and everything else that goes on around it. Yeah, the everything else that goes on around it, isn't it? It's fascinating. And of course, at the heart of it all is how we all live in different taste worlds. You know, partly due to our genetic makeup. You know, the number of taste buds we have on our tongue, the specific anosmias or things we can't smell, but also you know the differences in experience, emotions. You know, even the makeup of our gut microbiome mm, i mean that's um, interesting isn't it intriguing that is you know intriguing. Th- that research about how the microbes in our mouth can change what aromatics are released from any given wine mm. and that's obviously different for yeah. different people yeah, it is. you know well, so the microbiome of not just the vineyard and the wine which is fascinating and poorly understood itself mm. But also the microbiome of people, not just in the gut, but in in your mouth and and elsewhere. You know, I I think it's absolutely fascinating and it would be so good to know more about it. And we did also chat briefly about COVID. Mm. um, And Charles said he'd been surprised at how the clear evidence it was affecting people's taste and smell hadn't been picked up on earlier. Mm. And that it would have been very different if people had been going blind. (laughs) Which is a bit harsh, but fair enough. I mean, what he added, he added that what's called parosmia has also been common. Mm. So when things smell different to how they used to smell. So So anosmia is not smelling, whereas parosmia is just just smelling different. Things smell different to to what you expect or are used to. And he talked about a chef, for example, who who used to love coffee, but now it smelt for him like London buses or diesel. You know, that that Mm. sort of really not Mm. good. Mm. Goodness me. So 
wine tasting as an experience. That's the way we're going to launch into our food and wine theme over programmes to come, armed with all this fascinating knowledge and awareness, courtesy of Professor Charles Spencer. Thank you, Charles. Absolutely, absolutely. We're very grateful to Charles for his time and fascinating insights to this intriguing subject. Uh, If you want to learn more, do buy, buy his books. We'll put a link in our show notes to those. Thanks to everyone again for joining in our Bordeaux Mm. competition. We'll be back very soon. Thanks for listening and cheers. Cheers.